Welcome back to the 10 Blocks podcast. This is Brian Anderson, the editor of City Journal. I'm pleased to announce that our winter issue will reach subscribers and hit newsstands in just a few weeks. You can stay tuned for the winter's issue uh, for the official release by subscribing to our free City Journal newsletter, which can be found on our website's subscribe page. Joining me on the show today is Ilya Shapiro. Ilya is a senior fellow and director of constitutional studies at the Manhattan Institute, and he writes often for City Journal. His work on legal issues and higher education has uh, been featured in many popular and academic publications, including the Wall Street Journal and the Harvard Journal of Law and Public Policy. He's testified before Congress and filed more than 500 briefs in the Supreme Court. He's the author of several books, including Supreme Disorder, Judicial Nominations, and the Politics of America's Highest Court. And he has a forthcoming book that's going to look at the liberal takeover of legal education in America. Today, though, we're going to discuss an aspect of that, uh, Harvard President Claudine Gay's resignation, the controversies on campus there, the rise of anti-Semitism in the university, and the state of intellectual inquiry in general at at American colleges. So, Ilya, thanks very much for coming on 10 Blocks. Great to be on this podcast, and I recently learned that its name refers to that it takes about 10 blocks walking in in Manhattan to uh, listen to one, so... Hopefully, uh, someone is taking advantage of that, and I'll try to be pithy in that regard. All right. Well, last week, uh, as many people know, Claudine Gay did indeed step down as president of Harvard University uh, following the revelation several weeks earlier that she had plagiarized portions of her doctoral thesis and other academic work, uh, revelation, revelations that occurred in City Journal and, and uh, Free Beacon and a few other outlets. Now, at first, the members of Harvard's governing board stood by Gay, expressing confidence in her leadership. Um, They had even hired a law firm earlier to threaten another group of journalists who were looking at questions of plagiarism in her work. But as evidence of Gay's uh, kind of sloppy academic work at best mounted she and the board decided that her departure was going to be in the university's best interest. So I wonder, you know, as a first question, what does this denouement, but also the board's initial dismissal of the plagiarism accusations, reveal about the priorities at Harvard for governing the university? Well, this is the perfect storm, really, and the crystallization of so many different kinds of criticisms of uh, American higher ed, and especially uh, so-called elite uh, higher ed institutions that have come out in the last number of years. Uh, Claudine Gay, as you alluded, is a mediocre scholar, having authored 11 papers of no uh, uh, known, known repute, and uh, it, it turns out uh, a lot of that was plagiarized uh, beyond. Uh, and she came from a privileged background, was elevated for advancing progressive orthodoxy, as uh, dean of the Faculty of Arts and Sciences, uh, had installed various DEI programs and put in hiring schedules to uh, get more people that would advance this illiberal ideology, uh, uh, racialist, identitarian, uh, etc. And her ascent really epitomizes uh, this illiberal takeover of higher education, something different than kind of the decades-long complaint uh, of conservatives about uh, hippies taking over the Berkeley faculty lounge in the 60s or what have you. 
to really the, as I wrote in the City Journal, the apotheosis of an anti-intellectual movement that values DEI, identity, and activism over truth-seeking merit and education. And this, of course, all came to a head after her disastrous performance along with her erstwhile colleagues, the presidents of Penn and MIT, at a congressional hearing uh, in December to investigate anti-Semitism on campus that has come to the fore since Hamas's attack on Israel two months earlier. Those of us who have been talking about the rot in academia never thought it would take this Middle Eastern crisis to eventually uh, topple these uh, dominoes, but that's the moment we're in. And her plagiarism scandal, again, reveals an academic corruption, but the real problem is uh, much deeper than 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 Claudine Gay alone, uh, and goes beyond plagiarism and or you know the the, the issues that sunk the Stanford president earlier uh, last year about falsifying data and so forth, but epitomizes the uh, the decadence uh, and the and the rot, uh, as I said, uh, in higher ed that uh, you know these institutions really are now have to grapple with that it's a subject of public national discourse. Now, both Gay and the Harvard board issued letters after the resignation, somewhat downplaying uh, her academic record and dishonesty, really, and suggesting that she had received intensified scrutiny because of her race. So I wonder, you know, what that response implies about Harvard's commitment to restoring its reputation. Are they just going to replace her with, with a similar figure? Well, the story's not over. Uh, the board itself, or what they're known as the Harvard Corporation, somewhat haughtily, uh, also the the board and fellows of Harvard College, um, they're in the crosshairs for, uh, as you mentioned at the outset, hiring a law firm to threaten the New York Post and other reporters who are going to break the scoop on uh, Gay's plagiarism much uh, sooner. They're under fire. Uh, Bill Ackman uh, now made a name for himself. He's a, a billionaire investor and alum and donor uh, who uh, was not involved in, in these culture wars or DEI discussions until after October 7th and the scales fell from his eyes and has been involved in, in, in the, the discussing the plagiarism and, and trying to reform uh, uh, this institution that, that he cares about, has been really uh, criticizing the board uh, for having hired her in the first place. Apparently, there was a screen not just for checking the right demographic boxes, but what have you done to advance DEI and anti-racism, kind of Ibram Kendi postmodern theory school uh, coming out of the 2020 uh, so-called racial reckoning in America? Uh, and, and the board uh, is between a rock and a hard place because either they admit that she wasn't qualified to begin with and their whole identitarian project is suspect, or they try to minimize the plagiarism and say that this is all the product of a, of a racist and sexist uh, witch hunt. Um, and uh, I don't think the public is buying it. You know, confidence in uh, in higher ed has been going down, and and Harvard's brand has been sullied. Uh, and we'll see what uh, what goes on next. And you know, there it's not going to be an immediate uh, new hire of a, of a new president, but uh, the the board certainly uh, is being scrutinized, and uh, I think there could be turnover there, as I think there is. Uh, uh, ongoing tumult in the, the, the overseers and various boards at Penn, where the president resigned and also donors have been active. So uh, higher ed is a very uh, uh, a fervent area now. And, and uh, as Rahm Emanuel said, we can't let a crisis go to waste. 
Uh, and I think those of us that are trying to uh, force uh, these institutions, uh, kicking and screaming, at least their leadership, uh, to go back to their educational, truth-seeking, open inquiry mission rather than uh, these the becoming uh, incubators of, of social justice activism, we're, we're there for it. And I should, I guess, disclose that I myself am now on a board of trustees. I was appointed by Governor DeSantis to Florida Polytechnic University uh, back in October. Slightly different uh, project there, fairly new school, and we're trying to increase its uh, its reputation and, and rigor and all that as it uh, perhaps eventually competes with the Georgia Techs and MITs of the world. But um, yeah, the, the, the boards uh, and these other external shocks uh, are going to continue to be felt, and that's ultimately the only way uh, to right these ships. This entire university crisis, as you noted, um, actually began not with the plagiarism charges, but with uh, gays and other university leaders responding so weakly to uh, Hamas's October 7th uh, terrorist attack on Israel. And many, many college presidents failed to condemn the massacre as a terrorist attack. Um, they appealed to institutional neutrality or emphasize students' uh, freedom of expression. Uh, meanwhile, you know, the students across the country were denouncing Israel's government as an oppressive regime, were blaming the Israelis for the terrorist attack, and even going so far as to declare support for Hamas. So I, I wonder where did these sentiments originate? I think you've started to address uh, that question because it's, it's part of the same problem that led to Claudine Gay being president of Harvard in the first place. Um, in other words, you know, it's not just anti-Semitism, it's a kind of uh, deeper, broader uh, problem with the universities. It's remarkable that the center of uh, anti-Semitic, anti-Israel uh, thought and, and activism in America uh, is on college campuses and especially uh, on its elite campuses. Um, there's a parallel there uh, with the rise of Nazism, for example, uh, another illiberal uh, uh, movement where it wasn't that the intellectuals were, were kind of the rear guard, it was some sort of grassroots populace. There was that aspect as well, of course. Uh, but the universities uh, were very much at the cutting edge of that uh, uh, ideological development. I'm not you know, forcing any, any parallels uh, uh, other than to say that these are disturbing trends. And... Um, they're partially uh, a function of what's taught in class and faculty hiring and these theories of decolonialization, uh, oppressor-oppressed classes, social justice activism, uh, privilege hierarchies, these postmodern theories that are very uh, de rigueur, if you will, in, in academic departments. And so Students are, are taught that uh, Jews and Israel are, are, are privileged and powerful and, and white, uh, and uh, the Palestinians are, are the opposite and so deserve our, our sympathies for the so-called uh, apartheid state uh, that's being imposed on them, et cetera, et cetera. And that is being reinforced or even led by, it's unclear who, you know, where the chicken and the egg is, uh, by the bureaucracy, by these DEI structures. Uh, this is not, to be clear, uh, the enforcement of federal and state civil rights laws, lawyers and, and other compliance officers that make sure that the universities, uh, whether public schools uh, directly or, or private schools that receive federal funds, comply with uh, anti-discrimination laws and treat everyone equally and fairly and, and, and so forth. 
Uh, instead, uh, it's been the bureaucratization uh, and structural imposition of these non-teaching staffs, which have risen to be, you know, more. They're they're now in most of these schools more non-teaching staff than uh, than faculty. That story over the last couple of decades, the bureaucratization of higher ed, uh, also has greatly contributed to the corruption of of academia uh, and the imposition of these illiberal indoctrinations, these ideologies that are that, that have been brought in and these uh, orientation programs and uh, de facto segregation by uh, identity and ethnicity and, and, and so forth. It's uh, remarkable. Uh, these did not really exist when I was in college 25 years ago or law school 20 years ago. So again, something different than the age-old complaint about professors being more to the left of the public at large. Uh, and so these twin paths, the the, the viewpoint discrimination in, in hiring and the radical classes being taught, as well as the bureaucratization, which in the last decade has been almost exclusively in this uh, illiberal DEI space, uh, has culminated in a lot of negative things. And, and anti-Semitism, as Bill Ackman wrote in a brilliant essay, uh, originally posted uh, on Twitter X that was then reprinted by, by the free press, anti-Semitism is always a leading indicator. It's the canary in the coal mine but it's by no means the whole story. And so uh, this uh, Middle East crisis and the response on campus, uh, uh, you see the anti-Semitism, that's kind of the tip of the iceberg, but then the water has been drawn down and we see these, these other problems, be it cancel culture, be it the lack of due process when people are accused of things, be it the lack of free speech and Harvard and Penn and Georgetown, for example, where I had my lived experience are all in the bottom five for free speech of uh, FIRE's rankings, the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression that sets out the gold standard for these sorts of things. And at the same time, these DEI structures fail on their own terms. Uh, student surveys say that uh, satisfaction uh, and comfort on campus, feeling of inclusion and, and belonging are, you know, there's a correlation for it going down uh, as with, with the growth of these uh, DEI programs. So um, there's a lot to be uh, digested here and, and, and looked at and reversed. Uh, if we have a hope of uh, recovering the the classical uh, the classical liberal uh, values of higher ed, as as I said at the outset, of truth seeking and uh, uh, open inquiry, uh, as well as 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 basic values of free speech and due process. Some um, donors, uh, legislators, outraged by these campus protests, have called on universities uh, to sanction them. Sanction. Uh, students who are expressing and faculty were expressing support uh, for Hamas. Um, you know, some st some universities has, have suspended pro-Palestinian student groups, uh, canceled events. Uh, other critics are saying these measures are violations of the First Amendment, or or certainly violations of uh, you know a campus environment that would be conducive to free speech, which, as you just suggested, is is kind of ridiculous in the case of some of these elite universities, which have been cracking down on free speech pretty aggressively. But you, you've written, I think, very intelligently about an important distinction make that, that we need to make between speech and conduct, um, and that can help us in these kind of situations. I wonder if you could elaborate on that a little bit. There are three big buckets, uh, I think, that, that need to be considered when we're thinking about these issues. 
Um, first of all, you know, this is how I would have a- answered at least Stefanik's question at that hearing that got all of these presidents in, in trouble. Uh, you know, is, is it okay to have calls for genocide of the Jewish people? You know, first of all, call for genocide against any group is against the values of this institution and any people acting in, in good faith. You begin with that. And then you can start talking about uh, a nuanced uh, legal uh, answer that I'm about to give you. So first of all, uh, some of these things that people are claimed are protected by the First Amendment or school policies that mirror the First Amendment uh, aren't speech at all. So you do not get speech protections, First Amendment protections for vandalism, assault, violations of the criminal code. We're seeing in the off-campus context, blocking of public roads and, and things like this. There are criminal laws against this. Those can be enforced regardless of what your motive is. If it's a political motive or an expressive motive, doesn't matter. You don't get to beat someone up uh, because you have some political motive. You don't get to, this is a great example that I, that I saw a few weeks ago, someone urinated on a building the, that housed an organization they didn't like. Sorry, you don't get uh, a defense to a charge of public urination for saying you were expressing your displeasure. No, these things are uh, punishable. Then there's the uh, uh, exceptions to First Amendment or speech protections. For example, true threats. If you're making an actionable death threat or threat of physical violence against someone, you can be arrested for that. And there was a couple of months ago, a Cornell student was doing so and was arrested. And, that, and that's that's proper. And there's a whole jurisprudence about what constitutes a true threat uh, or incitement of violence. Um, this goes beyond just from the river to the sea or kill all the Jews. You have to be uh, there has to be a direct an imminent uh, threat of violence, incitement of violence. So if there's a speaker at a rally that says, you know, from the river to the sea, globalize the intifada, and therefore any Jew you see today, punch them in the face. At that point, it becomes uh, incitement of violence. Uh, and then it beca- that, then there are other, uh, further uh, uh, rules or, or exceptions or regulations about harassment and intimidation. So just a rally saying, you know, free Palestine or, you know, even more aggressive eliminationist slogans, if you have that, uh, while you're uh, uh, going around a dorm uh, where Jewish students live or a Hillel or a Center for Jewish Life, that can be classified as targeted harassment, uh, a hostile educational environment, these sorts of things, as have been, again, defined by Supreme Court precedent. And then there's a third bucket of time, place, and manner regulations. So even pure, protected political speech uh, could be improper in certain occasions. Uh, I can't go to your neighborhood in the middle of the night and with a bullhorn broadcast exactly what I think of Donald Trump and Joe Biden, for example. I can be charged with disturbing the peace. Similarly, on campus, there are rules against disrupting classes, disrupting speakers. If a student organization has reserved a room and has an event, you can't go around disrupting that. Uh, Blocking access to facilities. All of these uh, sorts of rules uh, that exist that regulate a uh, speech are, are are perfectly fine to have. And so it's not simply a matter of, well, uh, the Constitution and our speech uh, uh, policy at this school protects even uh, offensive and hate speech, which they generally do. Okay? This is not about cracking down on offensive speech. And uh, Liz McGill, the president of Penn, before she resigned, had this video that said, oh, well, we've been too protective of speech. We need to make sure to uh, outlaw uh, you know, calls for genocide of Jews as well. That's the wrong lesson to learn. The right lesson is to enforce existing rules against disruption, against assault, uh, against harassment, etc., uh, while uh, equally enforcing uh, uh, freedom of speech protections 
uh, and also equally enforcing uh, the rules of the uh, of the university, uh, which uh, which which were not happening uh, before, or institutional neutrality for that matter. It's kind of rich after you know five, six, and ten years of pronouncing on every little political controversy uh, in the country. All of a sudden, starting with the Hamas attack in Israel, you say, "Well, we, we're not taking a position." Again, that's ultimately the right thing to do: maximal protection of free speech and institutional neutrality. And I hope that schools adopt those policies going forward. Uh, Chicago University of Chicago kind of sets the the model for that. Uh, but uh, it's hypocritical of them to point to that right away now, uh, given the sordid history. That's very very helpful, Ilya. Um, a last question. This is kind of speculative, but it seems to me a lot of these illiberal trends that you're describing and you, you've noted that they're they're different than just the hippies taking over the universities. There's something even more pernicious about what what's gone on. That a lot of this really accelerated after the police killing of George Floyd in 2020 and the subsequent riots that that really tore America apart. I I wonder if you'd agree with that and and what your view on it is. Yeah, there's definitely an an inflection point. Um, and it's hard to disagre- disaggregate the, the George Floyd killing and, and protests afterwards from COVID uh, and kind of the, the the addling of so many brains, especially of the, of the laptop classes, if you will, the idea industry, uh, influencers of various kinds. And so we, we were in this unusual moment, cancel culture at its at its height and you know, social media, you know, Jonathan, Jonathan Haidt uh, and Greg Lukianoff, who wrote The Coddling of the American Mind. Uh, Greg has now followed up this year with the cancellation of the American Mind, co-authored by Ricky Schlott. And Jonathan Haidt provides the social psychological analysis of this, pointing back about a decade with the rise of uh, smartphones and teenager access uh, to social media, the the Michael Brown Ferguson protests. So there are a lot of kind of cultural developments, very recent in, in the grand scheme of things. And then the further inflection point of uh, Donald Trump's election 2016 and then COVID plus the George Floyd uh, uh, killing certainly accelerated uh, all of these negative illiberal trends. Uh, and perhaps now is another inflection point where we're uh, you know, pushing back on all of that. Well, thank you very, very much. Uh, don't forget to check out Ilya Shapiro's work on the City Journal website, www.city-journal.org. We'll link to his author page in the description. You can also find him on X at I Shapiro. You can also find City Journal on X at City Journal and on Instagram at City Journal underscore MI. As always, if you like what you've heard on the podcast, please give us a rating on iTunes. Uh, Ilya, thanks very much for coming on. Great to be on. And, and you know what, Brian, I've been a fan of City Journal for such a long time. I've been with MI for a year and a half, but I've been a, a reader and subscriber to City Journal for, I don't know, maybe two decades. So. Thanks. That's fantastic and very glad to have you uh, writing for us. Thanks for joining us for the weekly 10 Blocks podcast featuring urban policy and cultural commentary with City Journal editors, contributors, and special guests.